Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah Kahn and Emily Weigel. Today we are continuing our conversation about opioids and have had the amazing opportunity to be joined by Dr. Mujahid Latif, a UPMC pain management physician in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is also the creator of LockMed, a lockable pill box that not only helps family and friends safely store their medications, but also to prevent prescription drug use. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Emily and Hannah. So we had a few questions and wanted we wanted to ask you for our podcast. Just to start out about your business, LockMed, that helps keep prescription drugs safe, what prompted you to create such a useful box that has been distributed and used by large companies like McKesson and other institutions and medical facilities? Well, you know, there is a risk of uh, medications um, diversion when they're in the home that are unlocked and, and not secure. So as people take medications such as uh, pain pills and opioids, as they start bringing these medications home, there's definitely a risk of that uh, diversion of these medications starting. So when I was started practicing in Pittsburgh, I started uh, asking my patients to, to store these medications um, safely and lock them up. And what I heard was that there was nothing out there that they could actually store these medications in. And so, um, and I thought it was actually uh, extremely important that people start safeguarding these medications. Um, and really, that's kind of how it started. I started, I said, well, if, if there's nothing out there, then I'm going to develop something. And uh, which basically started uh, the, the, uh, the um, advent of LockMed from that, from that concept. Wow, that's really amazing. Um, the next question I had just to follow with that was, did you have any patients that openly um, talked to you about their prescription drug abuse or if they had family members who went through that? Yes, yes. So I still remember that um, there were patients who actually would come to me and you know, you can understand that I'm in a practice at this time, and I was actually uh, writing these medications to patients. And so there's a lot of oversight that's required among physicians when prescribing these medications. And so when people do come back to clinic for follow-up visits, I do require them to bring their medications back for what's called a pill count. So what pill count is that they would actually bring their bottles back with the actual medications remaining in there and we will calculate the amount of pills left. It's really unfortunate that we have to do that, but in reality what happens is, you know, people can actually sell pills or some people can steal pills and they won't know. And so when people start bringing their medications back, I started noticing shortage in these medications. And when I would ask what happened, um, a lot of them didn't know. And some of them would say, you know, I had friends over, I had neighbors come in, I had people come in to help me in the house, and they may have gone into my bottles and, and pill bottles and potentially sliding some pills out. You know, as you, as you have to remember, there's street value of these medicines down to each pill. And so that's really where we would actually see the shortages. 
and and again it comes back down to the home a lot of the problem stems from the house when people bring these medications it, they just can't keep these lying around they have to lock them up okay well that's very interesting on your perspective individually on how it affects you and your profession so thank you for explaining that and how it affects you so our next question um, there are pain and addiction specialists who believe that a lot of the blame for the opioid crisis should be on physicians, but physicians also have to do their part with treating pain and prescribing these medications. There seems to be a bit of a divide and that they are not working together. Can you give us some insight? Sure. <clears throat> so, so the, the authorization to prescribe this medication is broad. So anybody who really has a DEA license can prescribe opioids. And so what happens is you have physicians who don't really have the, the training in prescribing opioids, prescribing these medications. And so what was unfortunate was that pain obviously was a big component of, of debility, disability in people, and people presented to the doctors complaining of pain. And these medications were encouraged by the pharmaceutical companies to be written for pain. And um, because if you had a DEA license, then you can write it for pain. So when they, when they initially came out, they were not felt to be uh, addictive or have abuse potential, and they were prescribed widely. And so what happened is there were uh, the, the, the prescription volume went extremely high, and a lot of these were written by people who really didn't know how to prescribe. And so there was this, this risk of dependency that actually started happening. Now, your question as far as, like, you know, is there a balance there that could be met? So what happened is we started looking at people who were on these medications after, you know, the um, awareness started about how dangerous some of these medications can be in the wrong population. And so we've come up to a conclusion that these medications are not to be really prescribed long-term in certain type of individuals. And these are individuals, features and characteristics that have been identified through research and study that these individuals can be, unfortunately, can have a higher risk of what we call dependency and um, abuse potential of these medications. And so as long as, you know, those individuals are kind of carefully um, uh, identified and monitored if they are prescribed and then they these medications are prescribed really for short term that you can balance that effectiveness of managing the people's pain with decreasing the risk of addiction wow that's very interesting um with that what about with um even if those even if it's a small amount of of prescriptions given what is what about if they go to say the street, would would the doctors and and people who have a license to give these medications know about that, or would that just be an individual, the patient who does that, who makes the switch from legal prescription medications uh -huh. to the street, illegal side? Yeah, so that's a very good question. <clears throat> so, and that's the challenge. That's that's truly the challenge because, um, as you know, there's no test for pain there's really no test for pain and so we have a obligation to treat patients we also have an obligation to listen to our patients and we have an obligation to believe our patients 
And so, but we can't really test for pain. So when people come to us reporting pain and they report pain that is severe, that's where the judgment comes of the physician to, to whether to prescribe or not. Now we have new guidelines out now that basically help us through that decision-making. Now your question as far as, you know, a short uh, period of prescription for people, would they take that to the street and try to sell it? So what happens in these situations is that there are screenings that are done prior to prescribing these medications. And these are what's done to reduce the risk of this diversion that we call it. And so some of the things that we do would be checking a pharmacy data bank that state has that would see, has this patient been doctor shopping? Are there other doctors that the patient's getting prescriptions from? People who are, uh, who have that abuse potential, they're out there doctor shopping. And so the, the background check would pick them up. The second thing we would do is we would do a urine drug test on them. We do a urine drug test on them prior to prescribing an opioid. And so that can sometimes pick up uh, uh, illegal substances or um, opioids in, in, uh, in their urine that they probably did not disclose previously. Um, the third thing would be screening um, tests that are performed in the waiting room. There are questionnaires that are developed by psychologists uh, to screen high-risk behavior and screen for red flags for abuse potentials. And those have been uh, valid in research studies. And so we would have the patient complete these forms in the waiting room, and then they are scored. And then there's there's multiple different t- screening tests out there. But that would also provide information to the physician uh, and to decide whether to prescribe these medications short term. And then the other thing is that Sometimes medications are prescribed and, and are needed uh, for um, to treat pain. Like for example, somebody's had crushing, you know, fractures or surgery, and they are prescribed. So what we're asked to do is basically prescribe extremely uh, small amounts of me- quantity of medications, and then bring them back in and monitor them very closely. Maybe bring them back in every three days, and have them come in, pick up a small prescription. So. A lot of it is left over to the decision of the physician to make that decision. Wow. Well, I'm glad that these screenings have been put in place. Um, So I know that you live and work in Pennsylvania where the opioid use has seen exponential growth. It was found that from 2015 to 2016 alone, there was a 30% surge in drug-related deaths, and it was found that fentanyl-related deaths caused a 65% increase between 2015 and 2016. What do you believe is causing such spikes in this state? Yeah, so that's that's a really great question. Um, it's really unfortunate that this region really became hard hit. Um, with this uh, opioid epidemic, probably more than uh, other parts of the country. So some of the risk factors um, that can contribute to that and, and causes of that, um, it was felt to be like multifactorial. One was that there were a lot of prescriptions written for opioids in this region. This region is kind of an aging population, so there is a lot of chronic pain uh, here. And so sometimes to manage chronic pain, um, people were prescribed opioids. So so that was uh, one thing. The second thing is the population here tends to be a little bit, for some occupations, um, higher risk of pain and, and uh, injury. 
there's a lot of steel mills here. There's coal mines here. Um, so some of the, uh, these occupational hazards create situations where people um, are left with injuries and they are in chronic pain and they, they go to pain clinics. And so these were prescribed, uh, these medications. Um, the third is that this is, tends to be kind of the gateway area between Chicago and New York. And there's highways that travel between those two major cities. And so Pittsburgh tends to be kind of that middle city where it's, it's a stopover for illicit transport of drugs. But truly what happened was that there was a lot of, there were a lot of prescriptions for opioids written. And then what happened is all of a sudden with the scrutiny that happened um, and doctors were, became more aware of their prescribing habits, they started to cut back. And so unfortunately what probably contributed to that problem was that people uh, were weaned off or tapered off rapidly or were denied opioids. And those people went to the street seeking opioids. And unfortunately, some of those opioids were laced with fentanyl. And over time, as you know, there's the dependency factor for these uh, opioids. And people, you know, would get tolerant over time taking these medications. Some people really would, would not get the effectiveness that they desired. So what would happen is you would have a, you know, unfortunate situation where a drug dealer would say, look, we have a stronger um, fentanyl in the market. This is laced with something more potent. And that could be this, um, could be laced with fentanyl. And the combination of fentanyl along with a opioid on top of that would be deadly. And so that's part of the other contributing factor for for the uh, the number of deaths and we're seeing now that data came out for 2020 that the opioid epidemic has increased there was a dip in 2018 but 2020 the numbers were up to 90,000 people uh, were uh, estimated to have passed away uh, due to drug overdose the statistics are very terrifying and thank you so much for speaking to not only the area in Pittsburgh but also just how it happens between um, being like a middle city between both New York and Chicago. The last question we have for you today is about our role. So as college students, we believe that resolving the opioid crisis is in the hands of our generation and future generations, but it will only happen with education. In your opinion, how can the younger generation take active steps towards change? So that's really important going forward. Um, so we have learned a lot about pain now, and the treatment of pain has, has really evolved. There was a time when the treatment options for pain were very limited. And so because of this really unfortunate reality of the opioid epidemic, we have been searching more options for to treat pain. And so going forward, you know, I'm pleased to tell you that there are options out there to treat pain. Pain can be treated with multiple ways. And now we are looking at a holistic way of treating pain and not, not just using opioids. So going forward for people who do have pain, I would encourage them to seek other options to treat pain. Um, and these could be uh, multiple options. There are options to treat pain. There's, for example, there's non-opioid medication that can treat pain. There are cognitive behavioral therapy that can treat pain. There's acupuncture. 
there's uh, massage, there's microelectrical stimulations, there's injection procedures, nerve blocks, there's even pain uh, deadening type of uh, uh, treatments out there and implanted devices for extremely severe pain. Um, so there are options for treat pain out there that are more available and becoming more aware. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it, we do need more research uh, on further treatments for pain, which which really would open up a lot more options in the future for everybody. Thank you so much for your insight and for joining us today. We learned a lot, and we hope that our listeners did too. Thank you so much again, Dr. Latif. Hope you have a great day. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's great uh, to talk with you and, and Emily, and, and um, I'm pleased to be part of this conversation.